0: Sunday School for the book of Hebrews, number 2, on the thesis statement of Hebrews. Hear the word of our Lord from Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in the first verse. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. At VeryLutheran.biz, there is a PDF of this Sunday School study in which I have included a grammatical structure with highlighting, which, if you are to use this, or if the lay leaders for house churches are employing this, it might be beneficial for the group to study and see what we're getting at for the rest of this study. But, with that said, if you have the PDF open, It will be good to see this while I explain it. Chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews is the thesis statement of the entire book. It introduces the three most important concepts in the entire book. Everything that the author will be discussing springboards off of these four verses. And the first concept here is that of Revelation. The author of Hebrews first says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. With the operative word being spoke, God is the actor here, and he spoke to someone. First, to our fathers, meaning the pre-Christ Hebrews, and then later to the church. The text states that it was by the prophets that our Lord spoke to the children of Israel. But first, it says that God spoke in many ways by these prophets. What does he mean here? How can sending a message from a prophet one way equal sending messages in many ways? Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 15 through 22 establishes the office of prophet, the attorney and spokesman for the Lord. This was done in multiple ways. The Old Testament was written completely by prophets, so obviously many of them wrote. The, quote, the law and the prophets is the catch-all term the Gospels use for the Old Testament. Others were itinerant preachers, as the prophets Elijah and Samuel were. And there are even times in which these prophets had to make public illustrations with their deeds instead of their words, as Ezekiel does in Ezekiel chapter 4. He utilizes little army men. He paints a siege for people to see. Many ways, as Hebrews says, but only through one medium, the prophets. But, underline that word, but, in verse 2. The author now contrasts the prophets with Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Our Lord Jesus is often called the Final Revelation on account of the praise which this author heaps upon him. The prophets were normal men, given a message from the Lord. Jesus Christ is that final message. After this, the author makes his case by discussing who Jesus is to establish his qualifications. It is as though he were saying, yes, The prophets said all this, and it is true. But now let me introduce you to the new message which is brought to us by and in Christ Jesus. This brings us to the second concept, the supremacy of Christ. By our fathers, the writer is recognizing that his audience has Jewish heritage, This means that they will most certainly understand the solid foundation of the Law and the Prophets, or the Old Testament. But as new Christians, will they be able to say the same about the revelations concerning Jesus? In order to make it clear to them, he establishes Christ's qualifications by discussing 1. What the Father has established about Jesus. 2. Who Jesus is. And 3 what Jesus has done. So what has the Father established? First, that Jesus is King of all creation. God the Father has appointed Jesus to be the, quote, heir of all things, meaning, as Jesus says in Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The author of Hebrews is establishing here that Jesus Christ is Lord of literally all the universe, having received this authority from the Father. This is repeated in verse 3, which states, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. The expression, at the right hand, means to be placed in a position of both honor and authority. The author also establishes Jesus' qualifications by saying that he is how creation was accomplished and how it is preserved. It was also through Jesus that the Father created the world. The word translated world here is actually "ionas," which can be translated ages, but it also can mean world. The author chooses this word over the common Greek term kosmos, meaning cosmos, universe, creation, etc., because it is a more expansive term. While it means age, every age, even the very beginning, was made through Christ. In verse 3 he adds, he upholds the universe by the word of his power adding even more to Christ's function in the creation of the universe by saying that he preserves or upholds everything in their operations. The author of Hebrews was apparently very familiar with St. John, who wrote the same message in John chapter 1, verses 1-3. through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He also mirrors what St. Paul has to say in Colossians chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We do not understand how exactly our Lord Jesus holds the universe together. To say it is by the word of his power does not give us much detail, other than this being a description of omnipotence. If Jesus says the universe is to be upheld, then it is so. Some Roman Catholic commentators have speculated that Christ being the Logos, the Word, means that he is the rational principle behind the universe itself. So by being the Word, he upholds the universe as both Word and Power, connected in the verse. We might be permitted this kind of speculation, as explicit statements in Scripture point to something similar. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 24, it says that Jesus Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. If Jesus was the one through whom the universe was created, and if it is by Jesus that everything is held together, this does suggest that he functions as the divine outworking of God's omnipotence and omniscience. In other words, knowing what to say and how to say it, or even shorter, logos. The third qualification which the author includes here is that Jesus is superior to all angels. In the fourth verse, on account of Christ residing at the Father's right hand, the text states, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We should use caution with this verse, as it may, to some ears, imply what is known as adoptionism. Adoptionism is the idea that Jesus Christ was initially a human, or a being that was created but lesser than the angels. Therefore, by inheriting an excellent name which is superior to that of angels, he becomes God, or he becomes divine, as though he earned it by being a very good specimen of righteousness. Clearly this is not the case as the author has already established his divine power, his upholding of the universe, his role in the creation of all things. What the author is stating here is that he is superior to angels in reputation establishing, therefore, the theme throughout the book of Hebrews, that he is supreme over all figures, whether Old Testament saints, or prophets, or Moses, or even the angels themselves, the messengers of God, who are not human. Jesus Christ is above and beyond all of these, And we understand this because he has been given a name superior to theirs, which matches the glory that he already had. So then we move on to who is Jesus? We see first and foremost from the author of Hebrews that Jesus is divine. Not only is Jesus the heir of all things, but this is at least in part because he is the catalyst and power behind the creation of all things and all ages, using the word ionos. This would start some down a path of questions that the author answers with, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, it is stated here, that Jesus is God. If Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, then he is eternal. God has stated he does not change in Malachi 3, verse 6, among other places. If he has glory which radiates, then he has always had glory which radiates, making Jesus Christ eternal. But we must recall that glory itself is high praise, honor, and splendor, as well as God's manifest presence, per Isaiah 60, verse 1, and 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. If Jesus Christ is God's glory shining forth, then he is identified with God himself. Jesus is said here to be the very presence of God. Further examination of the scriptures makes this even more evident, as the Father has said, My glory I give to no other, in Isaiah 42, verse 8. But Jesus explicitly states that the Father will glorify him, John 16, verses 14 and 15. This only makes sense if Jesus Christ shares the divine essence, or hypostases, with the Father, making him God. In fact, that word, hypostasis, is used, translated as nature in our passage, when the author says Christ is the exact imprint of his nature. Now, by imprint, the word used, caractère denotes likeness instead of manufacturing or simple marking. In other words, whatever may be said about God's nature, likeness, and character, is also true about Jesus. If anyone should tell you that the Bible does not teach the divinity of Christ, let it be known that this is stated clearly and plainly in the first three verses of Hebrews. The author leaves us with no other conclusion. At the same time, since radiance is a shining forth from something, The author here is also affirming what later theologians would call eternal generation. Jesus is God, but he is also eternally begotten by God the Father, being eternally generated of him. This makes sense of the second verse, showing us how God speaks to us through Jesus. Christ is, as being begotten of the Father eternally, the self-revelation of the divine. This ties into the exhortation aspect of the book in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 22. Here, the stakes are made clear in the book of Hebrews regarding those who were tempted to return to Judaism. If Jesus Christ is God's perfect self-revelation, then to reject him is to reject what God has spoken, is to reject God himself being self-revealed to us. Now moving on to the final qualification here, the third verse speaks of the gospel. What did Jesus do? After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. By purification for sins, what the author is getting at, and will explain later, is that Jesus Christ, in atoning for our sins upon the cross, served as the high priest, uh, expiating our sins, getting rid of the stain of our sins and purifying us, while also being the sacrifice which is for God, to satisfy his wrath, to be a propitiation, to make sure that we, poor sinners, may be saved. It is this, that establishes the fourth verse, that Christ has a name superior to all angels because he is now Savior and High Priest, and he sits at the right hand of the Majesty on High, being given, after his resurrection, the official proclaimed title of King of the Universe, of the High Priest of all believers according to the order of Melchizedek, and so forth. Well, it might seem at first that the author here is barely mentioning the gospel. The gospel will become a focal point in many of the chapters, explaining the deeper roles of the atonement on the cross at Calvary. We are excited to get into this. It is an amazing set of passages that gives us greater insight into what Christ has done for us. It adds more and more to the gospel and demonstrates the depth therein. But we will have to wait until next Sunday for that. Until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.